Hey everyone, welcome to Challenge. How's everyone doing tonight? Great to see you. My name is Stephen Crawford, and I have great news. It's my birthday on Sunday. Yeah, you don't have to sing. No, 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 no. stop, stop, no, stop, stop, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I share a, a birthday with Brian Liu, actually. Now, it counted for both of us. Uh, so I, I, every year I have a, a friend named Chelsea. Some of you might remember Chelsea. Uh, she has a birthday on the same day. And every, every year we have a competition to see who can get the most uh, posts on their Facebook wall saying happy birthday. So if you think about it on Sunday, um, help, me, help me win the annual battle uh, that would be great. Uh, it's so great to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I, I am on staff here with Challenge. I've been on staff for a year. Uh, I also am a pastor at a church up in Pasadena called PRISM, and I am a seminary student as well, so I'm doing several things. Uh, I'm really honored to be speaking. Uh, we are continuing our series tonight on the resurrected life. Uh, so if you've been here the last couple weeks, basically since spring break, we have been doing a series on Colossians 3 and 4. Uh, we are now four weeks into it, uh, but don't, don't worry, you don't have to be here for all of it to understand what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but the uh, kind of central idea in this series that we're doing comes from uh, Colossians 3, 1. Uh, in, in this short phrase that opens this whole section, it says, if we have been raised with Christ. So uh, in, a, in a statement that opens with an if, everything that follows after that is contingent on the if statement being true. So that is kind of the theme of this section. If this thing that comes to the beginning is true, which if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then it is true of you, then all these other things are true as well. And this thing that is true of the Christian is that he has been raised to a new type of life in and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you have been baptized into the body of Christ, then you have been joined with him when he died on the cross so that this old self, the old person that you were before Christ, is dead, buried, and gone, and a new person in Christ has emerged out of the tomb with him. This is the symbolism of baptism. The old person goes down under the water, is drowned and dies, and a new person emerges. And then, of course, if we remember our foundational memory verse, a verse that if you have not yet memorized, you should memorize. 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Okay, we have different translations that we memorize, obviously. <laughs> the old person is dead, and a new person has been born. This is what Jesus means when he says that if you are to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, that metaphor is important uh, because it catches something about this new life in Christ. Because you see, when a, a, a baby is born, it doesn't emerge from the womb a fully formed person ready to go out, get a job, and contribute to society, right? Instead, 
it comes out a helpless infant. For many years, it needs complete uh, supervision and care. And for many more years after that, it needs careful help and attention. So in the same way, when you're reborn in Christ, although you are new, completely new, yet you are born a babe in him. You need to grow up into maturity. And that is, that is what Paul is teaching us tonight. These things that he's telling us in this section in Colossians 3 and 4 are the things about our new life, things that are true of us and instructions for growing up into maturity as new men and women in Christ. Does that make sense? That's our context for what we're talking about tonight. Before we get into the text, let me pray briefly, uh, and then we'll read it and talk about it. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to explore your word as a body of Christ. God, we come together uh, in your name to learn from you. God, we want to know what have you said is true of us and what have you commanded of us as new men and women, reborn in Christ Jesus, those that have been raised from the dead. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who has not yet placed faith in Christ and thereby been born again, that as they learn and hear about this new life in Christ, that they would be challenged and encouraged and called into it. Open our ears tonight to hear from you. We do not want to leave here unchanged, God. May your spirit be present. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians 3. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 17. So not a very long passage, but it's a dense passage. It's packed with information. I could probably talk for the next eight hours about these three verses. But don't worry, I, I won't go, uh, I'll just go about half of that. Split the difference, yeah. Uh, 15 through 17, Colossians uh, 3, 15 through 17. Uh, I'm going to read through it twice because it's short, all right? We want to kind of soak in it. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yeah, one more time. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There we have it, a, a brief little section. We're going to break down the structure of this passage in a very simple outline. You, you see it up here. I put it all on one slide. This is the structure of the text. There are three commands, three primary commands. The first is, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The second is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the third is, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus, Lord Jesus, not Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those are our three commands. And then appended to each one is a, a, a uniform manner in which we are to fulfill this command. So everyone is, the fulfillment of this command is to be done in a certain way. What exactly that, that manner is, we'll, we'll get into it as we go through this. So that's what we're going to, we're just going to go through these three commands, take a look at each one, explain what they mean, then we'll look at the manner of it, and we'll be done for the night. Sound good? <coughs> Excuse me. I still have that lingering cough from, from last week. My wife told me, don't cough tonight. <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> By the way, my wife is here. Yeah, she's real. All right, the first command, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. First question we have to answer here is what does Paul mean by the peace of Christ? What is it to have peace rule in your heart? Now, this is an instruction or a command. And as a command, it's kind of a, a strange thing because peace is a subjective feeling that we have. So if I told you, if you were like anxious and like uptight and worried and afraid, and I was like, be at peace. <laughs> I command ye, I command thee, be at peace. Uh, it, it probably wouldn't do a whole lot for you. Uh, and yet here's Paul commanding us or instructing us to let uh, the peace of Christ rule in us. The principle that is to rule over our hearts as the body of Christ is the principle of peace. So what is the peace of Christ. <clears throat> the peace of Christ, um, most simply understood, is the, the reconciliation with God that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the peace that Paul talks about in Romans 5.1. When he says, therefore, if we have been justified by Christ, or if we have been set right with God through Christ's death, our sins forgiven, and our righteousness established before God, then we have peace with him. This is not an experience or an emotion. This is a state or a condition that we are in. Whether we feel it or not. To draw an analogy, um, during World War II, uh, as, the, um, ally, as the U.S. forces uh, subdued the Japanese forces from island to island, uh, later on in the war, there were places uh, that the Japanese had occupied that uh, the United States Army just skipped over um, because they didn't want to go to the trouble of uh, getting, uh, you know, getting the Japanese out of that island. And when peace was finally uh, made between the U.S. and Japan, there were still pockets and places uh, of resistance um, where the Japanese Army continued to fight. And in fact, uh, it wasn't until the 70s that every uh, Japanese soldier um, surrendered. So even though there was a state or condition of peace that existed between the United States and the Japanese, uh, the, the, the present experience of many soldiers with it was that they were still at war. So uh, the peace of Christ that Paul is talking about here is a, a condition or a state into which we are ushered independent of what our experiences or feelings are. God declares to us, because we have been forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ, he declares to us that he is at peace with us. 
And this is a peace because God has declared it to us. It is independent of our actions or decisions. And therefore, it cannot be broken by us. If we have been raised with Christ, if we belong to him, then we exist in a condition of peace with God that is not broken by our own individual sins or rebellions or moments of weakness or anything like that. It is a a state that is declared to us. You are at peace with God. Now, this peace of Christ, as it dwells in us richly, the effect that it has is to transfer, transform our internal, personal experience of peace. So, the peace of Christ dwells in us, our, our rules in our hearts, first, because it is a state or condition that is established between us and God. So there is peace, you go to the next slide, peace between us, where, or is it, where does it rule? Peace with God. The second place that it rules, and it, it does because we have peace with God, Peace exists within us. So we as a people are prone to anxiety, to worry, to a lack of confidence in our own safety, our own security for the future. Am I connecting with anyone here? Does anyone experience anxiety or fears regarding the future? Yes, I, I, I do as well. Um, and, and yet what God is commanding us here through Paul is that peace from him should penetrate from this condition that exists between us and God into our experience. Why? Because our future is so securely established by the peace that we have with God that no uh, like disturbance in our personal life or in our future uh, can, can affect it or impact it. Does that make sense? Our, our personal experience of peace uh, flows from the condition of peace that we have with God. And w- as we understand, as we grow deeper in that peace, in our, in our intimacy with Jesus Christ, then that peace begins to transform and affect our present experience so that we feel at peace. Does that, does that make sense? <clears throat> the third place where peace is to rule is within the body of Christ or uh, in our personal relationships. Remember what, what Paul says here. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts just as you have been called together as one body. So the peace rules first in our relationship with God. Second, it rules internally within us. And third, it rules in our relationships with other people. Because we are at peace with God, we are free to be at peace with our fellow man. And Paul has in particular in mind, not like a a, a vague and general world peace, as if like a cessation from war on a global scale, but the peace that exists within personal interaction within us as a body, as a fellowship, as people living together, working together. Let peace rule in your community. That obviously is is not something that just happens. 
Uh, but as people that have been raised from the dead, because we are at peace with God, we are called to live at peace with each other. <clears throat> okay. Second command. Told you we're going to... Second command is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the first question we have to answer here is, uh, what is the word of Christ? And when, I, when I say that, uh, probably the first thing you think of is like the Bible maybe or you know, the, the word of God. Um, but remember, like Paul is writing a letter to the Colossian church. The New Testament did not even exist at this point. So it would be kind of weird if he was writing about uh, you know, let the word of Christ, by which I mean this letter I'm writing right now, along with letters I will write in the future and other books that I don't know about, but will one day be collected in a couple hundred years into one collection. That's probably not what he meant as he was writing this, if that makes sense. So what, what, is, what does Paul mean by the word of Christ? Uh, well, I know I just made fun of that idea, but I actually think it's pretty safe for us to assume that uh, the, the actual Bible is what he meant by the word of Christ. <laughs> That was a little bit of a confusing explanation there. The word of Christ is the revelation that God has made to his people in Jesus Christ. Before Christ came, there was no revelation or understanding of how we could be saved, what God was asking of us, what he was calling us to. But when Christ came, he spoke it, he revealed it, and by his actions in life, he showed us the way. And all those teachings were gathered together by his apostles, which included Paul. And the place where they were gathered were in these writings. So though the word of Christ in Paul's day was uh, the teaching or message of the apostles that was passed on from person to person within the churches, in our day, because the apostles no longer exist, it's the word of God that's been collected. But what, what is the, the, the point of it is the revelation of salvation and life in Jesus Christ. That is what is revealed in the Bible and what is to dwell in us richly. <clears throat> and and, and what, what in this instruction that Paul is giving. How is the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? <clears throat> First of all, it must become deeply known. <coughs> Excuse me. If the word of Christ is to dwell in you richly, a phrase which means like making its home within you, existing within you as a permanent member, not just within you but within your community, then it has to be deeply known. It has to be an object of study. It has to be memorized. Now, I'm, I'm talking to Christian Challenge students, and I, I'm pretty sure that you guys care about the word a lot. I, I, my experience, at least. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. But let me tell you, however deeply you know the word now, you can know it deeper and better. There is no end to how deeply we can know God's word. And that, that is the thrust of this command here. Let it dwell in you richly. If it is to dwell in you richly, you have to know it. You have to spend time in it. You have to study it deeply. <clears throat> okay. 
How else does uh, the word of God dwell in us richly? It has to be deeply felt. It's not just something that we know a lot about so that we can answer a bunch of trivia questions. Who's Alexander the Metalworker? No one knows Alexander the Metalworker? Oh, man. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, <laughs> Paul says, Alexander the Metalworker did me a great deal of harm. Isn't that a great verse? <laughs> All right, now you know. Who's Alexander the Metalworker? He's a guy that did Paul a great deal of harm. We know literally nothing else about him except that he did Paul a great deal of harm and that he was a metalworker. Okay, great. That's not why we know the word, to know a bunch of cool trivia and can make a lot of great Bible jokes, right? We know God's word so that we can experience deep, it deeply, so that it shapes and transforms the way we feel about God, the way we interact with him emotionally the way we interact with each other emotionally. The things that are revealed to us in Christ Jesus should move us. It should be an emotional experience of God. <clears throat> this is done as we worship. We pray as we meditate on his word. It's not enough to just know it. It needs to be felt as well. And then the third way that it dwells in us richly is it must be deeply lived. Our lives are transformed by it. The word affects us, therefore, in three realms. In the realm of the mind, it shapes how we think. In the realm of the heart, it shapes how we feel. And in the realm of the will, or what we do. If the word dwells in us richly, then we know it, we feel it. And we live it out. <clears throat> now, this is a command. Uh, it's, it's often been um, observed that the imperatives in, and the, uh, the, just the verb forms in Paul's letters are not singular but are plural. When he's speaking here, he's not speaking just to you but to your community, to your whole church. So this is a command that the word dwell in us richly, not just as individuals, but as a people that are living together. And for now, as long as you are in college and call Christian Challenge your home, this is your, this is your people. And the word of God is to, or the word of Christ is to dwell within us as a community richly. How is that done? Paul gives us two ways. Go to the next slide. First of all, he says admonishing, or te excuse me, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. So if the word of Christ dwells in us richly, then the way that we interact with it is that, first of all, positively, I teach you about it. That's what I'm doing now. But also the implication is, you teach me about it too. You can do that later. We teach each other in the body of Christ. As we know the word, we instruct one another. That's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is that we admonish each other. We use the word of Christ to rebuke each other. That's the less uh, fun and pleasant part of this. Oops. Teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. If the body of Christ is functioning as it should, then you are free to tell me, Stephen, 
Here is where you're not living according to the word of Christ. And I say, tell me. I want to learn. I want to grow. Teach me. I want to be changed. And then you say, well, what about me, Stephen? What do you see in me? Where do I need to be transformed and changed by the word of Christ? Admonish me. Teach me. Being both open to this, to give it and receive it, is crucial to the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. The second way that this is expressed in the body of Christ is that the word of Christ overflows into psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word of Christ reveals to us truths so beautiful, so powerful, so life-changing that the only proper response we can have to it as a body of Christ is to lift our voices in song and praise and worship to God. If the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, if we understand it as we should, we will be moved to worship. Worship will overflow out of us. And we will sing together. I love this verse. It's great, right? Singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Now, if I was a real, like, Bible commentator teacher tonight, I would tell you the difference between a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song. But I'm not going to do that because I don't really know. They all sound good to me, though, right? <laughs> Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, if the word of Christ is dwelling us richly, then our lives overflow into that. Third command. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, this is probably, uh, I, I, this is like one of those kind of Christian-y phrases and words that uh, you know, people say a lot. Yeah, do everything in the name of Jesus but don't always, like, understand what the heck it means. Um, and so I'm the kind of person, I like to take these, these phrases and words that we say a lot, and, like, we're going to define thoroughly what exactly does this mean. What does it mean that you should do everything, all your words, all your deeds, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the command from Paul. Some of these commands, it's, like, mind-boggling how big a command that is, right? <laughs> like, that is literally... Everything that you do is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about a broad command. It does not get any broader than do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, uh, the, the um, proper uh, way to think of it is like an ambassador um, or uh, we might think of like a lawyer. Um, so when, when you do something in the name of someone else, it means that um, you're acting as their official representative and that you've been kind of uh, filled or, or um, given the uh, authority or right to act on behalf of that person. So uh, if, if somebody can't be at a meeting, they might send somebody to act on their behalf. And the actions and decisions that are made, it was as if that person that was not there was doing that thing. So to do something in the name of Jesus Christ is to do it as his official representative. It, were, it, it is as though Jesus Christ himself were doing that thing. 
that should, should be an extremely sobering idea. Because what if everything you said and everything you did, the person that witnessed it said, oh, so that's how Jesus acts and that's how Jesus speaks. And my idea of who Jesus is is being formed by what you are doing and saying. That, in essence, is what Paul is telling us here. When you go out tomorrow, the first thing you say to somebody, it, it were as though Jesus were saying that to that person. That is the thrust of this command here. It's very serious, very sobering, very all-encompassing. Everything you do should be seen as though Jesus Christ himself were doing it. <clears throat> that apparently is how Christ views our actions. <clears throat> Sorry. So uh, what's the question next? What should be done in his name? So what, what sorts of things should we, be, should we be doing in his name? First of all, all of our public actions should be done in his name. By public, I just mean someone else can see it. It's in the public. If you do something and someone else finds out about it, it's public. Everything that you do that people know about, it should be as though Christ were doing it. Meaning it should be guided and filled with the ethics, the character of Jesus Christ. Second, our words. Everything we say. Everything we do. Everything we say. Whether in word or deed, Paul says. There are many other places where Paul talks about um, commands regarding our speech. Um, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building others up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Sometimes the, like, the thoroughness of these commands is, like, should stagger us. Paul says that everything that you say, everything that you should say should be for the good of those that hear it. Every idle word. There's not like, most of the things you say should be done in Jesus' name. But every now and then, if you get frustrated, you know, or if, not, you know, you're just with, you know, just between friends, you know, it's okay. You can do whatever you want. But no. Okay, third, what else should be done? Everything. <laughs> public actions, public words, and also your private actions and your private words or thoughts. <laughs> Everything. Everything. Why? Your, what you say and do in private eventually becomes what you say and do in public. It's inevitable. And of course, God himself witnesses what you do in private. So those are our three big commands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And everything that you do, uh, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. All three are commands so large and broad that we could spend the next seven hours applying them thoroughly to every aspect of our life. But instead, let's move on to the manner with which we are to fulfill these commands. Each one is followed by an encouragement towards gratitude. 
So the first one, and be thankful. And the second one, with gratitude in our hearts towards God. And the third one, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with gratitude in your heart. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gratitude or thankfulness is like this all-encompassing attitude, mindset, philosophy, and outlook that covers over all of these commandments. It is to be the default like, condition of our heart. As peace grows in us, as the word of Christ grows in us, as we learn to do things in his name, gratitude fills us. <clears throat> what is gratitude? Gratitude is the proper sense of what we have been freely given in Jesus Christ. So if we understand what is given to us in the gospel of Jesus through the cross, the, the natural or proper response is gratitude. Now that does not mean that it's inevitably always present, but it does mean that in, it, when we really know it, when we really understand it, it's like those moments, like, you know, you should always be grateful for your parents, what they've done for you. Like, you know, like every now and then it just like hits you. Like, oh my gosh, my parents made so many sacrifices for me. And then, you know, that you, you suddenly feel grateful for them. It makes you want to like, call them and do something nice for them. Well, you always should have been grateful for them, right? It's not like uh, only in those moments when you feel it. That is what uh, Paul is referring to here. At every moment... There is sufficient goodness in what has been given to us by God to so fill our hearts with gratitude that it drowns out every other emotion within us. That does not mean it's always there. <clears throat> Why should we be grateful? Gratitude is owed God. This is just a transactional thing. Okay, God has done the best possible thing for you. There is nothing better that God can do for you than what he has done. No good thing have I withheld from you, he says. And therefore, in the presence of such overwhelming generosity, gratitude is owed to him. Now, I, I know, like, you know, that doesn't always, like, produce a reaction, right? Like, you owe, you owe gratitude. It's like, okay. I feel it. You know, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, but we should start at the beginning. Gratitude is owed to God because of what he has done. For the Christian, no good thing have I withheld from you. No good thing. Second, gratitude is a true uh, emotional response. It's the fruit of understanding, of an authentic understanding. Therefore, as we grow in our knowledge of God, right, as we grow in the word of Christ, as it dwells in us more and more richly, gratitude should naturally flow from understanding. That should be the emotion that is produced in us naturally. As we contemplate, as we understand, as we sit in the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And third, gratitude is the key to joy and peace in our life.
In this life, you will have trouble. <clears throat> there will be things that harm you, that hurt you, that are troublesome, that cause pain. Many of you have already experienced some of these things. There are more coming. Everyone that you know is going to die. Maybe after you. You might not see all of them die. You might die before them. You will experience pain and sorrow in this world. Gratitude is the key to joy and peace. So when should we be grateful? First of all, when we are experiencing blessing. When good things happen to us, we should be grateful. Whenever any blessing comes your way, you should know that it is more than you deserve. What do you deserve? By natural rights, the moment you sin, you deserve hell. Everything else that you get besides that is a blessing and a gift from God. So every good thing you have is a gift. And therefore, with every blessing, you should experience gratitude. When else? When you experience hardship. And third, at all times. <laughs> so things are good, things are bad. Basically, at all times, the command is gratitude. Why is that so? Like, you should think of, like, the, uh, the ups and downs of blessing or hardship in your life are kind of like this, right? Sometimes things are better. Sometimes they're worse. But at all times, there is a joy of possession of eternal life that so far exceeds the highest thing that you can experience on earth that no matter how low you have, there is a source of gratitude that transforms your anxieties, that transforms your fears, that transforms the difficult things you're experiencing. Because you have the deed, the title to heaven in your hands. And nothing can take that away. Therefore, gratitude is the key that runs through all of these things. <clears throat> so, summary and application. I think I already summarized it. Here's some application questions to ask yourself. Here's what to, to think through. I think uh, as we apply the word, it should interrogate us. So this is what to ask yourself in response to this. I have told you things from the word. Now ask yourself this. When do I experience anxiety, fear, bitterness, jealousy towards others? In other words, when is my experience of peace with God broken? And peace with others broken. When am I not grateful? Second, how do I tend to react to negative events in my life? It is negative events that will show you where it is that you're grateful to God. Are you grateful just because God has given you a pleasant life? Or are you grateful because of the cross of Jesus Christ? The way that you, act, you react to negative things that happen in your life will reveal that to you. Third question to ask yourself, when do I complain about others? What causes negativity in me? I, 
could keep asking questions forever. It's a very broad application tonight. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Lord, above all, we are so grateful that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you have purchased for us peace with you. And Lord, I know that I and everyone here has a variable experience of that peace. Lord, none of us are grateful as we ought to be. None of us experience peace as we ought to. Lord, all of us fall short here. But God, I pray that as the word of God, as a community dwells in us richly, Lord, that we would be transformed by it. That gratitude would be born with us, that it would grow, that it would multiply. Lord, so that we may walk with you in the freedom and intimacy to which we have been born. Bless us, Jesus. Your name we pray. Amen.